0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. Today's guest is Ryan Anderson. Princeton class of 2004, and president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Dr. Anderson is the co-author of five books, including most recently, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. After graduating from Princeton, Phi Beta Kappa and Magna Cum Laude, he received his doctoral degree in political philosophy from the University of Notre Dame. His research has been cited by two US Supreme Court justices, Justices Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas, in two Supreme Court cases. In addition to leading the Ethics and Public Policy Center, he serves as the John Paul II Teaching Fellow in Social Thought at the University of Dallas and the founding editor of Public Discourse here in Princeton, New Jersey. We were so excited to welcome him back to Princeton after such a successful career and to sit down for this conversation about the work of the Ethics and Public Policy Center and the role of social conservatism both in D.C. and beyond. So with no further ado, I really hope you enjoy this discussion.
2: Ryan, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you back on campus. Thanks for having me. Um, Social conservatism in certain circles of D.C. has been very much on the rise recently. Um, Definitely, at least as compared with previous eras where in D.C., conservatism had a much more, I think, libertarian tend. Um, And so you've previously noted that social conservatism has not always been the senior partner uh, in the conservative movement. Why do you think that is? And why do you think it's changing?
0: Sure. So, um, I mean, I think historically... um You could trace this both to uh, what the donor class was primarily concerned about, Mm. um, which I think if you see the rise of the conservative movement being a response to uh, bad regulations, over-regulations, so they wanted to respond to that, um, high tax rates, um, lack of free trade, things like this. Hmm. Um, The courts wanting to push back on, um, you know, two generations of progressive jurists. And so you see a huge rise of um, economic conservatism and um, jurisprudential conservatism. And then something similar in foreign policy. I'm not as up to speed on foreign (laughs) policy as you, so I won't speak as much there. Uh, And social conservatism was always kind of like the junior partner of where the philanthropists um, mm. invested money, and it was the junior partner of where like the intellectuals um, uh, invested time and effort, right? So this mm. is what makes Robbie George such like a unicorn, yeah.
2: Um,
0: because like Robbie is primarily known as a social conservative, but he also did jurisprudence, obviously. He also did um, political philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think it's a combination of uh, what was um, donor class most concerned with themselves. And then where were intellectuals most comfortable vis-a-vis what would get them um, uh, kind of canceled a generation prior to, you know, what we now refer to as cancel culture. Mm. And so it wasn't like cancel culture in the sense that you would necessarily like have your book removed from Amazon, you know, <laughs> speaking. I don't but know anyone was... <laughs> who that's
3: happened to. <laughs> but no, I'm not cancel, even one.
0: <laughs> cancel culture in the sense of like what would get you um, frowned upon in the faculty dining hall? Mm. Or what might get you denied tenure uh, back in the 80s and 90s? Right. right? And so you could see even before um, things got particularly as nasty as they are today, (laughs) um, you know, most conservatives weren't interested in um, making their career, defending the right to life or defending the nature of marriage or defending kind of like subsidiarity and solidarity, et cetera, et cetera. And then the second part of the question was, like, why the rise now? And I think partly it's because there's a younger generation of people Mm. who are recognizing what an utter failure it has been to think that if we just got economics, um, jurisprudence, and foreign policy correct, Mm. the culture would take care of itself. And so what we're discovering is, like, no, like, you actually have to cultivate a culture um, just as you would have to do for an economy, just as you have to do for a foreign policy – And um, the pipelines. So if I was still a grad student or when I was a grad student, there was plenty of funding for um, summer research, Mm. for dissertation research, for postdocs. If you were doing something in the ballpark of... Um, free markets, free trade, economic freedom, lots of grad funding for those sorts of things. Not nearly as much if you wanted to like do a social science study on family structures yeah. or a um, social psychology or kind of like family psychology or child psychology of gender dysphoria. Right? right? So think about like where could you get funding as a grad student, a recent postdoc, a junior faculty member. And you know, still to this day, it's something I, you know, Am thinking about what we could do at EPPC to, you know, um, improve this situation. Mm. But we have a pipeline of intellectual talent on economic, on foreign policy, and on jurisprudential questions. We don't yet have that yeah. type pipeline here. So one thing we are doing, we're, we're partnering with the um, the Public Interest Fellowship, um, oh. starting I'm this. Oh, your alum. I, oh, know you're a K-PIF K-PIF, I yes. didn't know that. Yes. <laughs> so, so, so as you know, like if has their general yes. fellowship, and then they have one on originalism they have one on economics and they have one on foreign policy yeah and they never had anything on social cultural like moral issues and so I have a friend who um, works there and I was like you know you guys should have one on these issues. And so we're gonna partner with TPF and EPPC, where like they know how to like do the yeah. um infrastructure and the organization of one of these fellowships. We have all the faculty. And so like each yeah. session of this, it's called the Richard John Newhouse Fellowship. So we're naming it after uh, Father Newhouse, who, you know, spoke in the Madison program. I remember my I think it was my senior spring. So it was like right around this this time of the year, the big there was like a big spring conference on Oh, I don't remember which anniversary it was of the Naked Public Square, but there was a big conference honoring Father Newhouse, and it was maybe the 20th anniversary of his book, The Naked Public Square, um, here at Princeton. And so, you know, he spoke um, for Robbie's program, the Madison program. One year we had him speak in the Princeton University Chapel for Respect Life Sunday, and mm. you know, he took the train down from New York and gave us a great great sermon on it. But anyway, so we're naming it after Father Newhouse. And then like each session will be taught by a different EPPC scholar. And then TPF is going to handle all of, like the administration, the logistics, like the applications. Um, and they're helping us fund it because you know, yes. we don't have enough money. <laughs> One of my struggles is still with development work, but it's it's yeah. going to be great. And it's, and it's meant to like you put your finger on historically, you know, people talk about the three-legged stool right. of conservatism. And unfortunately, social conservatives um, were always the junior partner of the coalition, even though when you look at the people, yeah. um, look at the citizens, look at the voters, look at like the things that are like existential questions that keep parents up at night, and it's not like will there be a new tariff or will um, you know marginal tax rates on like capital gains go up or down? Like th- those policies matter, but they don't keep me up at night. Right? Um, you know, will my daughter be sexually assaulted in a bathroom by a boy identifying as a girl? You know, has happened to two. Middle school girls in the school district where my wife and I live with our yeah. children—like those are the things. Like because we know those parents, and like these are the things that keep them up at night. Um, and so, anyway, so like as a result, I think you do now see um, more people concerned with those issues, um, and I think that's all to the good. The scatter plot that everyone points to from the 2016 election—do you remember the, the blue and the red dots and all of the blue dots? So this is like the Clinton-Trump election, mm. and and you know it's a standard like two by two quadrant, and the quadrant that is fiscally conservative socially liberal is entirely empty and like that's like the libertarian co- quadrant of all of like the political um consultant classes which is you know i'm fiscally conservative but socially liberal is more or less empty the blue dots were all on the uh fiscally liberal side of the line but you know it's fairly evenly distributed between social conservative and social liberal mm. i would say more socially liberal than not but the blue dots you know spanned and then the red it's all north of the equator, right. uh, which means socially conservative, and then they're you know e- you're distributed across the two top quadrants a little bit more on the fiscally conservative than fiscally liberal, but but it's both, and they're right. really clustered right at that dividing line, which suggests fiscally moderate, socially conservative, um, and so I think one beneficial aspect of the past five six years. you know, people say realignment, stuff like this, Hmm. is just like an awareness um, that many of these cultural issues actually are um, kind of unifying issues Hmm. amongst the electorate. They might not be unifying amongst the elites. They might not be unifying on an elite college campus like Princeton. Um,
2: (laughs) They're unifying the other way.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, like everyone is against us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you don't need to be a conservative, a Republican, a Christian to think that boys shouldn't be in girls' bathrooms, locker rooms, or sports. Like, the number of people who think the Leah Thomas situation is simply unjust, Hmm. unfair, violation of equality that Title IX was meant to protect— regardless of whether they're liberal, conservative, republican, democrat, religious, non-religious. Like this is actually, you know, these are these are some of these like 60, 70, sometimes 80% issues when you look at the public um, opinion polling and so like they can actually be part of um, you know, a winning electoral coalition. Mm. I think if people do it right. I mean, I think the the fear here is that some people Want to avoid these issues? They yeah. don't talk about them, and then other people um, want to throw bombs, yeah, a- and in a in a, in a like, very caustic way that like makes even our allies be like, ah, "I can't retweet that because you're going too far." And so, like, the opportunity here is like, don't go silent on these issues, hmm. but also don't be a bomb thrower. Don't like go out of your way to be nasty and obnoxious. But if you like, if you speak truthfully and you do it charitably,
2: yeah,
0: um, you'll see it resonates with a lot of people.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm going to float this. I think the left kind of part of the issue is that people have not always viewed these kind of issues that keep you up at night about, uh, you know, schools and what have you as political issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a possibility. And this is where I think maybe you'll disagree that the left just started viewing these as political long before the right did. And the right kind of did so reactionarily. Yep. Um which comes with its own host of problems. but I, I wonder if you can talk to me a little bit about that. I mean, why haven't these been considered yeah. political in the past?
0: No, I, I mean, I think you're exactly right. I mean, and this is part of um, uh, the, the the kind of cultural Marxist long march through the institutions, yeah. right? I mean, and I think that if you ask yourself a question like, how did it come to be, six, seven years ago that all of a sudden trans rights are human rights. And Joe Biden now says that trans rights are the human rights issue of our generation. This is not a grassroots phenomenon. This is not like a soccer mom phenomenon Mm. demanding that we have like gender fluid identities for our grade school kids and that we have gender neutral bathrooms and like blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. This was very much a we're going to march through the institutions. We're going to have a corporate Equality index, we're going to have a healthcare equality index, we're going to have a university equality index, and then institutions will be docked if they don't have the right score. And so you can see, like, where did all these pediatric gender clinics come from? Like, the human rights campaign was marking hospitals based upon whether or not they had trans friendly healthcare. Where did all these corporations, like Target and Major League Baseball, the Dodge, right? There's various pressure from activist groups. Saying you have to get with um, the program, and they were much better at this. And, yeah. and they saw that like this won't be um, a bottom-up phenomenon, but we can seize control of not just political institutions, like governmental institutions, but even private institutions that function in kind of like public ways. Right, I mean, big business, big universities, um, Hollywood TV shows, sports. I mean, this is why yeah. NBA, NFL. Um, uh, major league baseball are so important because they shape our culture Um, and so like one by one by one various activist groups captured these institutions and that's where a lot of this stuff came from right it it, it was not a like working class populist um, uh, soccer mom and Joe the plumber you know demanding these sorts of policies these policies were imposed on them and now many of them are rebelling Right, and and that's why it's a very interesting. Look at what's happened with Bud Light, et cetera, et cetera. Um, The people who drink Bud Light aren't interested in, you know, various transgender ideologies, right? It's just, and so like the the disconnect between customer customer base and like product marketing, is a parallel disconnect between like where the voters are, and where the consultants are, and what we're now seeing is some politicians are picking Mm. up on this. And then some of the kind of like public intellectuals, talking head, Twitter personalities are um, capitalizing on that yeah. for 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 good or ill, right? I mean, I think some of this is um, not always as productive as it could be. Yeah. But I would say, for a whole, like we're in a better spot than we were ten to fifteen years ago. Like when I first started at Heritage, it was like you know hushed tones that some mm. of us would whisper about, like what we needed to get done and how do we navigate the various internal um hurdles we would come up against because like historically heritage only did fiscal policy and foreign policy hmm. um and you know for the first i think heritage just celebrated its 50th anniversary a month or two ago and for the first 35 or 40 years it really didn't touch any of these issues and now it's, like, leading the charge on many of them. So, yeah, so it's a very good—I mean, Kevin Roberts has been a great um, development in leadership of, of heritage. And, like, they're leading on many of these issues, and that's, that's a good development. Um, and the question is, like, you know, how can we um, figure out what, like, a new fusionism would look like for the 21st century? If there was a fusionism that kind of characterized um, the conservative movement during the Reagan years— Um, What does that now look like? What does economic conservatism, a foreign policy conservatism, a social conservatism look like given 21st century challenges, uh, which are different than the challenges that we had in the last Cold War?
2: Yeah, I'm happy that you brought up the Bud Light example because there's I mean, there's a lot of debate about it and a lot to unpack there, I think, because I mean, it seems to me. One, companies have been doing this, like most companies have been doing this for a long time, and it's only when they go for like the reddest meat possible right. company, right, that anyone even noticed or cared at all. Or, or
0: the bluest meat, if if we want right. to get our partisan. Right, exactly. <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, but
2: like I ordered a dress from Abercrombie the other day, and it came in a pride bag, and it's not even remarkable, even yep. for me, that that, yep. that, that happened, right? And then on top of it, right after Bud Light had this whole snafu, Miller then did the exact same thing, just right one after the other. And it sort of makes me think, like, what do they know about the market that I don't? Right.
0: Right. right. I mean, it must be somehow making
2: them money, you would think.
0: Well, so so that's I mean, this is um, I have not looked into the data enough to know, but I am not um, persuaded that it is a moneymaker. Um, like I don't, I don't think it's true that people say, "Oh, go woke, go broke." Yeah. I don't think that's, I don't think that <laughs> is necessarily true either. Well, I people just think said that there's... it as
2: a way to avoid having to do anything about yes. something. Unfortunately, it was a, yeah. it was
0: an excuse-making talking yeah. point. I, I just want to suggest that I'm actually not sure whether like the going woke thing helps them. Um, you know make a marginal amount more or a marginal amount less yeah I think it's more of they are doing this irrespective of what the economic costs are Hmm. because either some of the CEOs are true believers and you see this with like the CEO of Salesforce and like you think about like Indiana Riffra, where there Hmm. were various business leaders who clearly you know this is a cause that is near and dear to their heart and they didn't care if there was gonna be some minor economic cost for them boycotting various states and you see this with like you know governors saying you can't travel to red states that have laws that we don't like you know the nba moving the all-star game things like this right yeah um so sometimes it could be that like the 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 executive you know the governor of california the the head of Salesforce is a true believer sometimes i think it's just like path of least resistance mm. there's an hr officer or there's one board member who's really clamoring for this stuff And the rest of us just don't care. And so we're not going to fight it. And I think there's also a lot of that. And so, so, I mean, from from people I know who work inside of some Mm -hmm. of these major corporations, major law firms, it's like, yeah, like one partner at the law firm really, really cares about the LGBT stuff because maybe the partner is LGBT identifying him or herself or they have a child. And the other ones just kind of like roll their eyes. But none of them wants to speak out against it Mm -hmm. because the personal cost to them would be too high so even if it might you know cost target and and, you know from what i can tell right now the target stock is going down um you know who knows what the long-term outcome of that will be i don't want to like embrace the go woke go broke theory um just you know as such as like a truism um but i think partly it's like even if it does cost us something we're still doing it anyway either because someone at the top is a true believer or someone in mid-management, one board member or the DEI person or the human resources person is pushing this stuff. I mean, I think, f- and then the other people won't go along with it. And, and to finish the thought, I think five or six years ago when Target announced their um, like gender neutral fitting room policy like via Twitter, it was like literally some like low to mid-level like social media person who went public with this, and then the higher up said, well, we're just going to run with it because reversing it would actually be more costly than not right yeah. and, and so you can see where it's kind of like you know this was just like some mid-level person who you know might have made a mistake or might have been a true believer and was like trying to you know similarly in the way that joe biden announced support for gay marriage before obama did and then mm. you know so so like whether it was a mistake or you're trying to like i didn't know that know, that's
2: interesting oh yeah yeah
0: yeah because yeah. like you know biden um uh, uh he he announced his support first because then in 08, when Obama ran, you know, at Rick Warren's church, he announced that, I believe, marriage is a sacred union between a man and a woman. And then by 2012, he had evolved.
3: Mm. Um,
0: and, you know, obviously, the Supreme Court was hearing the Windsor case um, in the 12-13 term, and then Obergefell was decided um, in the 14-15 term.
2: Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, it does strike me that... Ugh, you know, this is how, I mean, this is how culture is created, like in some sense by unanimity, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, do you have any thoughts on how to combat that? Because I think a lot of people don't understand exactly how concerning that is, that we've sort of reached a point where in so many of rooms where decisions are made. I mean, people say, oh, well, like there's so many silent people who agree with us. But I mean, does it matter? Like if they're silent?
0: Um, yes and no. So, like, um, <laughs> I mean, they—they they, silent people will follow um, outspoken leadership, right? Yeah. I mean, this is why Robbie is so important on this yeah, campus, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, so think about it—like, having one outspoken, like, conservative Christian faculty member gives cover and courage to like hundreds of undergraduates who are more silent, right? Yeah. And, and for some of them, it's not their vocation, like picking these sorts of battles. Like they're here to study Shakespeare or they're here to study aerodynamics and like they're not here to be a campus culture warrior, but Robbie does give them a certain um, permission to think heterodox thoughts. Yeah. He also then inspires um, some of the students who do have vocations to, you know, do what he does. Um, and then so what we need is we need, like it's not as if like our movement should be anti-elite. Hmm. We, we need a better elite. Um, and like Robbie is a good example of this. Harvey Mansfield at Harvard, again, there's like one uh, yeah. faculty member can change an entire campus, change an entire department. Um, so in academia, we need more people like that. Uh, and then in the corporate world, we yeah. having a couple CEOs that say, no, like we're not doing anything during Pride Month, right? We don't do anything during um, like a Christian Pride Month or like, you know, if, if we don't, we're, we just don't do these things. Um, I mean, even better, like, I, I, I think we need more people like the Green family, the owners of Hobby Lobby, to say, like, not only are we not doing anything during Pride Month, but on Easter Sunday and on Christmas, like, we're taking out full page advertisements and we're sharing the gospel. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's even better um, uh, if you can go that far. But, but if you can't, and look, there are, you know, uh, I, I, I think Hobby Lobby is a privately held, so it's like a family corporation. Mm. It's not publicly traded. And so, like, you know, there'll be different. Um, uh, uh, constraints that you have to operate within, but if you can at least get, you know, a company like Walmart to say, look, we're not taking sides in these debates. And to my mind, that's what right now David Bonson is trying to do with some of his like shareholder um, activism. You know, he's responding to shareholder activism by saying, well, wait, like, I want you, because I'm an investor, I want you to tell me how much this is costing me. Because your fiduciary duty is to maximize my return. How much is your various DEI and CRT and other kind of woke activities um, uh, reducing my return on the investment that I've made uh, in your company? So that's at least getting some corporations to go neutral. And then I think others, it's perfectly appropriate for the Green family to say we are Christians. We run our business in accordance with our beliefs because it's an extenuation Mm. of our vocation. We have a vocation. Um, not just like Sunday morning when we're in church, but like what we do Monday through Saturday, right? Their business is closed on Sunday, right? So all of their employees can honor the Sabbath, right? They close early on weeknights so their employees can get home to be with their kids. And so so I think more companies like that are also a good thing. Because again, like this gives courage to people. Look, you don't need to run your business um, uh, uh, as a silent majority or a silent minority. You can be vocal about it. Yeah, and Hobby Lobby is thriving. They've had great years. Um, Chick Fil A. I mean, it's 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 actually. I mean, I think it's somewhat sad that, from what I can tell, the Kathy family doesn't give to, you know, overtly social conservative causes as much as they used to because of the blowback that they received. But when there were the various boycotts of Chick Fil A's. There were all of these conservative people intentionally going. You had yeah. like, you had like, what were like buy ins rather than like sit ins? You had like people going there specifically to get chicken sandwiches on these specific days. Um, we can do more of that.
2: Yeah. Um, I kind of wonder, I mean, with EPPC being in DC, I mean, we've talked a lot about kind of the private individual at universities and businesses, what they can do. What's your view on the role of like how policymakers and people in the center? I think there are definitely people out there who just think this is a cultural issue. I mean, what what can politics even achieve?
0: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, like um, Robbie and I somewhat disagree about this, (laughs) but like I don't think that the next Robbie George is going to be housed at Princeton. Yeah. Uh, in the same way that I don't think the next Marianne Glendon is going to be at Harvard Law School. I don't think the next Hadley Arcus is going to be at Amherst College. Um, I think that for this next generation of like serious conservative scholars, they're going to be housed at think tanks. And so like the next Marianne Glendon is probably Erica Bakiaki, and she's one mm. of our scholars at EPBC, right? The next Robbie George. I mean, actually, it's probably Sharif Gerges, and Sharif is at Notre Dame Law School. <laughs> but, you know, if not, you know, it's it's an open question of like, would Sharif have been hired by any other law school um um that would be a good fit for him and, and you know, mm. he might have been at eppc if not for i mean thank god i mean notre dame law school is crushing it and it's their faculty is you know it's like you know dozens of people who clerked on the supreme court who also go to daily mass like it's just like yeah, it's a yeah, wonderful yeah. collection of like um intellect and um uh, uh sanctity holiness and it's just it's just it's a great place to get a legal education if you're um catholic or just you know broader christian um so so i think more so because like notre dame can't hire everyone uh people are going to be at a place like ebbc rather than a place like harvard or princeton or amherst and that's okay because i think to a certain extent unfortunately many of our elite universities are degrading their currency um having a degree from Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, being a professor at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, doesn't mean what it used to mean. Um, And employers know this. Families know this, like when they're deciding where to send their kids to college. And so that also means like, you know, being an EPPC scholar
3: Hmm.
0: um, might be the, you know, kind of elite credential for a coming generation um, that, you know, being a Princeton scholar was. It's probably never going to have the same cultural cachet, but people in the know will know. Um, So anyway, so that's what I'm trying to do. Like I want to build up... An institution where people can do serious scholarship that will then influence um, public policy and cultural stuff. So so we're a unique think tank in that like we have a dual audience Hmm. of both the state and the church. Um, Most D.C. think tanks just focus on politics like we're explicitly. Um, in the Jewish and Christian traditions. I don't like, we still, I think, technically somewhere in our bylaws use the phrase Judeo-Christian tradition in the singular, but really I think like the Jewish and Christian traditions in the plural. uh, There's obviously overlap, but the traditions are separate as well. Yeah. Um, But we're intentionally ecumenical and interfaith, uh, and we have scholars who, you know, they exist to serve religious leaders, navigate challenges of modernity. Because even, you know, bishops, pastors, rabbis, need help in thinking through, you know, how do we counsel families navigating smartphones with children, right? That's yeah. a pastoral question for churches, synagogues, mosques. It's also a legal question. What should the law be? We have laws that say 16-year-olds can't buy cigarettes, can't buy alcohol. Why should they be able to open a Twitter account or a Snapchat account mm. without, at least without parental consent? Right? I mean, one option must be you ban it, Entirely, another option would be you, you need to have explicit parental consent before a minor can open these things. So, like one of our scholars is working on tech policy, hmm. um, the Utah bill that was just passed like a month and a half ago. Um, it's based off of her recommended policies, and, and you know sense. Governor Spencer Cox, like he explicitly like cites her white paper as the motivation for um, his signing this bill into law. Um, I think what is it on, on Monday night she's flying somewhere I think in Kentucky to meet with lawmakers there so you know Claire Morales her name doing great work on this for policymakers like educating them on like these are different model policies that you could enact um, to protect kids either from obscenity protect kids from social media protect kids from you know private digital devices in their pockets mm-hmm. uh, but then also that like, she's working on a book that she's writing right now um, which is for parents you know, what do you need to know as you try to raise children with these new technologies, right? And like, what 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 do we know about the neuroscience, the dopamine hits? Like, these things are designed to addict our kids. Yeah. There's a lot of um, so one is just like, do you want your child spending like the majority of their childhood swiping with their thumb on a screen rather than actually like going out and like doing stuff? Yeah. And like this has all sorts of questions for like agency, for resiliency, for just like the character and the virtues that you want to habituate in children. So there's like, you know, the devices and being the algorithms being designed to addict people. Then there's a question of like, all right, there's there's a lot of like objectionable content. Yeah. Obscenity, pornography, um, uh just like, you know, vile language, et cetera, et cetera. And then there are bad actors, right? Yeah. So so there's also like there are people there who are intentionally trying to um uh corrupt your children right Mm. and and this is both like ideological bad actors but then also like human trafficking sex trafficking things like this um a lot of parents don't know this right so she's writing a book that will like alert them to like what the nature of the different problems are and then like what the various um solutions that families can do Mm. but then also like none of us can do this alone because like even if you 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 have a no screen policy for your kids or a no tech policy whatever if all of the neighbor kids have this your child, one, is going to um, experience your family's policy as like a unique burden to them. Um, and then two, they're probably just going to see stuff on their their friends, the neighbor kid's phone. So you really kind of need like an entire community, like everyone at your school to kind of like sign a covenant saying like we promised to each other we're not going to let our kids have these devices until freshman year of high school or junior year of high school or college, like whatever. You know, different people will set different limits. But there's a societal, there's an ecological yeah. aspect to this. You can't do it alone, which then raises the question of like, is there a policy response? I think there is. Um, yeah. I think Utah is a good model on this. Like, I think if anything, it empowers parents um, because the, the, the kind of like rule is none of this until age 16, uh, except for unless you mm. have explicit parental Uh, consent for it when you ask the broader question of like how does like scholarship and think tanks impact policy and culture yeah um, it's partly by like our you know so Mary Hassan would be one of our like leading um, transgender ideology experts and like she spent a lot of time helping you know different Senate offices with like their legislative language she also runs a program to help Catholic bishops and Catholic schools know how to teach the truth about this stuff like school choice is great only if you actually have schools that choose to exercise their choice i could
2: not agree to be
0: (laughs) unique to be different right and so if the catholic school down the street has the same exact curriculum as the public school then it's not really a choice right and so like what mary's done is both working with legislators but then and their staff even more importantly but then also like working with religious leaders and their staff and school principals, school superintendents to make sure um, uh, uh, what the actual campus policies and campus curriculum on these issues is accurate. And the last thing I'll say there is like the work of Stanley Kurtz, another one of our senior fellows. Hmm. We can't just do school choice. I mean, so Stanley says, look, I don't work on school choice issues because everyone else in the conservative movement works on school choice issues. I work on reforming the (laughs) governmental institutions that we call public. Right. Because like those institutions, governmental institutions, K through 12 and higher education, I think 90 percent of Americans attend a a public school. And so like school choice is great. We should grow it. We should continue to promote it. But in the meantime, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. And, you know, the public schools need to be reformed. Yeah. There's no reason why poor children who can't um, escape Public schools who live in a state that doesn't yet have school choice programs, like they're trapped in these schools. Why should they be exposed to the gender unicorn or the gender bred person or you know, have a boy in their bathroom, et cetera, et cetera? Um, so, so we can do both. And like, you know, we're trying to do that at EPPC. Other institutions are doing that. And I think increasingly you're going to see that a lot of the thought leadership, the scholarly leadership on these issues will come out of think tanks to a greater extent than they used to. When I was an undergrad at Princeton, I think of, like, you know, who were, like, leading conservative intellectual lights. You know, it was Robbie. It was Marianne Glendon. It was Hadley Arcus. It was Russ Hittinger. It was Gil Milander, It was a bunch of university professors. And now there aren't as many housed at universities, more and more of people that you would now be looking to, people like Erica Bakiaki, people like Mary Hassan, people like Stanley Kurtz. They've been locked out. I mean, Stanley was teaching at U Chicago and at Harvard. And, you know, now he's been with us for 15 years or so. and Yeah. Um, and that, and I think we're going to see that repeat, unfortunately.
2: I think the kind of the most pressing follow-up there is because Sharif Gerges at Notre Dame is training lawyers, and Robbie George at Princeton teaches undergrads.
0: Who then go to law school, who then clerk in the Supreme Court. Right. Yeah.
2: But, like, I mean, and the left has all of social media, even if we were to kick them out of the schools. Right what is the plan to reach students and train students?
0: Yeah, I mean, so um, I think there are enough students at a place like Harvard, Dale, Princeton, who are conservative, who know that they need to look outside of campus to get um, the rest of their education. Hmm. That you can get a great education on these campuses if you supplement it with some off-campus programs. And like some of that might be, you know, at Harvard, the Abigail Adams Institute, at Yale, the Elm Institute, at Princeton, the Witherspoon Institute. Some of it might also be like doing the summer honors program with ISI, doing a summer program with like the Hertog Fellowship. Um, uh, you know, there, there are various summer programs now, like Witherspoon, like I teach one on natural law and public affairs. Um, for lawyers, there's a wonderful program that uh, Alliance Defending Freedom runs, ADF, the Blackstone Fellows Program, where it's like two weeks of courses um, Sharif and I both teach in it, and then it's a six-week internship either at a law firm or with a judge or with a state AG or SG, and then one week of professional development the summer after your one L year. So you've had like one year of law school, and then they get you for a summer, and there's like, all right, here are all the other things that you're not learning at your law school, unless you go to Notre Dame, that we can now <laughs> supplement. Um, and then during that last week of professional development, we can also like kind of let you know like. Depending on what your career aspirations are, like if you one day hope to clerk on the Supreme Court, here are things you can start doing now to prepare for that. Like here are um, judges at the district and circuit level mm. you could be applying to clerk for. You know, here, you know, you, you, you some law students don't realize you, you, you need to make law review. You need to be an editor for the law review to have the right things on your CV to then have the right to be hired for the right internships, et cetera, et cetera. But then also substantively, like I'm going to be teaching five different um, sessions for Blackstone in the next two weeks, like one's on marriage, one's on re- uh, re- why religious degree is important, but it's not enough. One's on transgender issues, one's on maybe they're two on transgender issues, and then one's on like why legal advocacy like matters, like why it's important as part of like a larger cultural social um, program, like why you should think of your like lawyerly vocation as mm-hmm. a vocation, like why it makes a difference. Um, And so, like, ADF has that program. Like, there are other, like, you know, Blackstone has, um, like, year-long fellowships where people come, spend a year with Blackstone, um, and then they might, you know, go off to then go to law school or, you know, we hired one of their, um, last year, one of their fellows then came to EBBC and now she's, like, working on our HHS project. So it's, there are alternative institutions running a variety of programs precisely to supplement where... Um, the contemporary elite university mm. is lacking. Um, and, you know, that's a it's a makeshift. Uh, it'll get us through, and then we'll see what comes next. Um, yeah. Because, you know, there's a question, like, obviously, like, um, we're trying to reform new college um, in Florida, and, you know, so there might be, if, if we're successful there, there could be um, a model for um, other governors in red states to say we can reform public universities in red states. Um, there might be some private universities that are reformed. I'm less hopeful about that. I think what is likely to happen instead is that various private universities we're going to see um, go out of business. I think I, we're yeah. seeing that happen because fewer kids are going to college, and so like we're just seeing like you know demographics and market forces, and it, it, in particular, it's going to happen to like small religious colleges that are not distinctive. And it's like, well, wait, why am I paying? More tuition to get the same education that I could get at the state university with in-state tuition, where it's like you're giving me the same thing, but there's a crucifix on the wall. But then alternatively, like the schools that are distinctive, hmm. the schools like Hillsdale, Grove City, Christendom, Franciscan University, Steubenville, Thomas Aquinas College, like they're going to be experiencing growth. yeah. And then schools that are trying to decide, like which way do we go? Like do we double down on our like authentic Christian identity? or do we go the way of like Georgetown and Boston College? Yeah. Um, and the thing here is that like Georgetown and Boston College have already gone that way and they're like at the elite level. If you're like a middling school, it's hard to like become an elite school by saying we're gonna aspire to be the next Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, right? There's a lot of competition there. But if you're gonna say like, we're gonna be the next um, uh, Thomas Aquinas College or we're gonna be the next Hillsdale, and like there are a lot of families, like there are more applicants to TAC and to Hillsdale then there are spaces, and so it just strikes me that it's a growth industry. If you want to take um, uh, mm. a, a middling Christian school and double down on Christian yeah. identity and improve academic excellency, this is like a field of dreams moment. If you build it, they will come.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I kind of want to circle back. I mean, you sort of talked you're teaching on religious liberty this summer. Um, And, I mean, EPPC is a really interesting structure in that it's so serious about religion without actually being like we're a Catholic think tank um, or a Jewish think tank or what have you.
0: Intentionally like interfaith and ecumenical.
2: Yeah, I mean, talk to me a little bit because it seems like I can I can remember a time when interfaith was the left wing right, right. buzzword that gives me like PTSD flashbacks to my Stanford yes because but, <laughs> because by that
0: we do not mean like yeah. least common denominator yeah. water it all down which is like why I even like you know like rather than saying Judeo Christian tradition like singular say the yeah. Jewish and Christian traditions because there are also different Christian traditions like yeah. our thought is like what we actually want is like we want our Reformed Presbyterian to be authentically reformed and we want like our Catholics to be authentically Catholic and recognize that like we disagree and there are important disagreements like likewise with like Jewish LDS or Muslim colleagues like the differences are significant they make a difference. But here's what's interesting take Orthodox Jew LDS Muslim reformed Protestant Catholic on anthropological issues on moral issues. Mm-hmm. There's virtually no daylight. I mean there is at the margin, like we'll get debates about contraception, we'll have certain debates about yeah. um you know under what circumstances might um uh um, the death of the unborn child be justified for a life-saving medical procedure like how do we think through double effect and proportionality? Um but none of those communities that I just mentioned are on board with gender ideology or with same-sex marriage or with like abortion as birth control. Um, uh, and so, what's interesting there is that, like, precisely to have like civic renewal, um, having religious renewal f- across mm. different denominational tradition lines. Like, I want my LDS friends to be authentically LDS. I want my Muslim friends to be authentically Muslim. Same thing for like Jews, for Protestants, for Catholics. Like. We're actually going to be better if we don't water it all down and, like, hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Like, that's the bad, like, PTSD um, uh, uh, invoking. <laughs> the
2: Buddhist singing bowl with yeah. the female rabbi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, that
0: is – because what it does is it makes it yeah. seem like religion is actually not all that real. It's not all that important. Well, that's why they're comfortable believe, California. Yeah. yeah, we all believe the same thing, really, yeah. at the end of the day. It's like, no, like, we don't all believe the same thing. Like, we have disagreements. They matter. Yeah. They're important. We also have certain agreements – and those things matter and those things are important, and, like where we agree we can work together um, precisely for some of these um, public policies that best protect human dignity, that best promote human flourishing, um, that are based upon a true account of human identity. Right? I mean, like, that's going to be really important. And then, like, we create the space to then have theological disagreements. I mean, I, I think it was Father Neuss who said, like, you know, we agree about pen ultimates, but we disagree about ultimates. Right? that's a, I think it was maybe someone else said that, but like I like that formulation is like w- where we have agreement are on the things that are of penultimate importance. But the things that are of ultimate importance, um, you know, questions about God, about salvation, you know, the different faith traditions have disagreements. Yeah. And part of, um, you know, either the genius or the hubris of the American experiment was to say that if we agree about the penultimates, um, we could have a civilization that allows us to disagree about mm. the ultimates. Um, we're now discovering that that's impossible if we also disagree with the penultimates. Because right now, <laughs> and, 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 and there's an interesting question of like, well, and can you continue to agree about the penultimates if you don't agree about the ultimates? I mean, this is part of the question of like, does John Locke lead in a straight line to mm. drag show story hour? I don't I don't think it does. But like the reason that's a question is that some people want to say like unless you actually have agreement on the theological foundations as well, you yeah. can't reliably produce citizens that agree about these penultimate questions of anthropology and morality.
2: Yeah, it's kind of a big question as we start to wrap up here, but I'm wondering if you could comment a little bit on that, you know, the kind of John Locke to Drag Queen Story Hour. (laughs) I mean, because that is such, certainly in intra-right-wing debates, that's such a hot-button topic. Um, And particularly, I mean, there's sort of the, like, do we like John Locke-specific debate, which is very hot, but also just kind of the broader debate of, like, as right-wingers, should we value liberty at yes. all? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, what are what are your thoughts on that? Because yeah. it seems like there, there's a strong push to either say mildly liberty went too far or to say more affirmatively it was never a good idea.
0: Yeah. Um, so a lot- we, we, I know, we, it's a big that, topic. That could have been your first question. We I know. So um, I, I'll say this. Um, The founders did not just read John Locke. Yeah. And the John Locke that the founders read was not the Straussian hobbist Locke, right? And so, like, the founders read John Locke as a Protestant political theologian. Yeah. um, And in addition to reading Locke, they also read, like ancient thinkers yeah um, they read natural law thinkers they read common law thinkers they read other Protestant political theologians and they read some enlightenment thinkers but they read the enlightenment thinkers through the lens of the ancients the medievals the Christians the common law the natural law etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, and so I just think it's like it's it, I think um, both sides of this debate make a mistake in saying America equals Locke Hmm. Locke equals Enlightenment liberalism or Locke equals Hobbes, something like this. Uh, and then the, the only question is, like, good or bad? Yeah. Right. And so like I think, like, sometimes David French can oversimplify the nature of the American founding to just Lockean liberalism. And he's like, and that's good. And then sometimes, like, someone like my, my you know, former dissertation committee member, Patrick Nadine can oversimplify it to America equals Locke. And that means bad. Right. Right. Um, And, and, you know, and Patrick's a a more nuanced thinker, but there are times when like he, I think, oversimplifies uh, what I know he knows more, um, but he's not saying as much in any given, you know, essay or lecture or whatever. Um, So so I think like one is that we should push back on the notion that the founding is just like Lockean liberalism of Mm. um, like you know, um, uh, uh, what is it, uh, chapter five or book five of, of the second treatise where it's all about self-ownership. And, like, that's not how, like, the mm-hmm. founders read Locke. And there's no reason why we should um, uh, embrace that as, like, what America is all about. Look at the nature of, like, um, both colonial practice and early American practice – we had all sorts of morals legislation. Right, The book that Robbie wrote that got him tenure at Princeton was titled Making Men Moral. Yeah. It was a defense of paternalism, right? a defense of the state passing laws to promote public morality. Um, everyone understood that while the federal government was one of limited and enumerated powers, the state governments had plenary authority, yeah. which meant they had the police powers to promote public health, public safety, and public morality. We've simplified all of this as to say, well, no, no, the 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 limitations placed in the federal governments are just what justice requires. And therefore, those are the limits upon all just government. And therefore, the state has no role in promoting public morality, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And that's overstating things. It's oversimplifying things. Um, The subtitle of making men moral was public morality and civil liberties.
3: Mm. Right.
0: And and I think that, you know, your question is like, you know, was liberty the problem? Is it was it too much? Is it a bad thing? No, like liberty is not the problem, but it's that liberty isn't the only thing that matters. Yeah. And so like the subtitle public morality and civil liberties gives you a suggestion that we actually need both. And like part of today's debates is that we have the libertarians who are just focusing on liberty as the highest or even the only political value. They're making an ism out of liberty. And then you have some people who like doubling down on the public morality to, you know, giving short shrift to various forms of liberty, right? It's precisely out of concern for the flourishing of religion and mm. true religion, right? Right worship of the true God that I think in our circumstances we actually need religious liberty, right? And so you could say that we're a religiously pluralistic people. Um, we have a natural uh, human right based upon human nature, right? This is the entire argument of like Second Vatican Council, Dignitatis Humanae, is that it's the nature of the human person. The human person has duties to God and therefore political authority needs to protect the space for the human individual to fulfill those duties to God and not just as an individual but in community and so that religious liberty needs to be a communal liberty which means it's also going to be the freedom of various religious institutions churches synagogues mosques etc right so so we need liberty here precisely to fulfill a good an aspect of human flourishing but that also means our liberties are gonna have limits right? and so, so I think another like helpful way of thinking of this is that all of our natural liberties have natural limits right? what are the natural limits they're governed by the natural law hmm. right and so our natural liberties vis-a-vis religion are gonna be governed by the natural law right? what sorts of things might violate the natural law human sacrifice so you don't get a religious liberty exemption if you're the devout. Um, uh, uh, um, um, uh, oh, geez, why, why, why am I blanking on Aztec? The, Aztec, who wants to engage, yeah, thank you. Right, so many you options see, actually. Yeah.
2: Many ancient cultures, but, <laughs> but you, you knew the one I was yeah, yeah, yeah. blanking on,
0: right? And so you could say, and but then like likewise, like um, I think a sound no understanding exemption
2: for Clytemnestra, alas, no, or, yeah, and and,
0: and and I think likewise, yeah. um, uh, when people say, well, what about the Satanists? Satanists, that's not religion. No. right religion yeah. When the founders understood there's a natural right to the free exercise of religion religion is the duties that we owe to the creator that yeah. is not what the Satanists and the Church of Satan are doing they're intentionally mocking real religion uh, and so like we can perfectly say that the natural Liberty has limits and outside of that are things that aren't even religions in the first place outside of that are religious practices that are violating the natural law um, Anyway, we could have we could go through all of the various kind of like civil liberties that we want to protect. Like, I think free speech is important, right? It's important for me to be able to express my views, but then also the people who disagree with me, both from my right and from my left, to be able to speak to criticize me. But there are going to be limits to this. right? Obscenity is not speech. Fighting words are not speech. Um, incitement to violence and other, you know, understanding of fighting words, time, place, manner restrictions, but not viewpoint restrictions. It's like sometimes people, oh, viewpoint neutrality, it's a bit, well, no, what we mean by that is in like limited circumstances, if you are allowed um, to publish a book in favor of gay marriage, the government can't censor you for publishing a book against gay marriage, right? But the government can totally say we don't publish handbooks on how to assassinate people. That's- Yeah. Thumbnail sketch.
2: Well, this has been phenomenal, Ryan. Thank you so much. One final question, even though I know we're over time, and I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, As is traditional when I interview a Princeton alum, I'm wondering if you have a favorite either memory or lesson learned from your time at Princeton.
0: Oh, there's so many, um, both memories and lessons um all right so i'm gonna give you a couple because i can't okay. pick one i mean so, like princeton was like the first time i ever discovered that like, mass was celebrated on weekdays like a- uh. apart from holy days of obligation like i thought it was just like, a sunday and uh you know holy days so like first time i ever started attending daily mass at princeton never knew eucharistic adoration was a thing until princeton right and so like just like the um the you know absurdity of like thinking and that so many of my friends because i went to like a very progressive uh, you know nominally quaker high school in baltimore and the thought that like oh ryan's gonna go to princeton and get radicalized as like more serious about his catholicism yeah. would have never and, and they didn't know what to do with me when i came back and i was like more more catholic than when i left um so like some, some of those things would just be like you know memories, experience, lesson learned. But I, I will also like one of the courses that, you know, I was actually mentioning this um, uh, to Anna this morning when we were having breakfast at PJ's Pancakes house. Um, Thursday, September 13th, 2001, um, 9 a.m. was the first day of class. Um, so this is two days after the attack of um, September 11th. Um, and there was a first year professor at Princeton teaching the Christian ethics in modern society course, mm. and, like I still keep in touch with him. This is Eric Gregory, oh, and he's lovely. He, he's he's wonderful, and like he he was ABD. He hadn't even yet finished his dissertation, but he's teaching now at Princeton. And like two mornings after the attacks of nine eleven, he has like an overstuffed room because I think people had now transferred into the class specifically because they right. wanted. They were curious, Christian ethics in modern society. And Thursday morning nine a.m. is the first day of classes for that semester. Um, and I would say that like, one, he he was just, you know, the lectures he gave, you could have like transcribed them and published them as a book. And I, I, I hope at some point he's recorded these things and it becomes a book. They were, they were just outstanding. And I would say like that's probably the course that most impacted me to like um, think about and end up like pursuing this course of work as a vocation Mm. like there were other things that like happened like obviously you know i never studied with robbie i never took any robbie's courses but like robbie has had more of an impact on like the structure or the substance of my thinking but eric's course really was the first time i was ever exposed to like Mm. wow there are like deep theological traditions of thought on all like every we went through every hot button issue issue that semester um, like ecological ethics, like feminist ethics, like abortion, gay marriage, like wow. every capitalism, socialism. Like it, it was like literally like you went through like week after week after week, all these issues. And you read, you know, maybe five different perspectives on an issue, um, like from the left, from the right, pro, con, um, you know. M- anyway, so it was, it was a really good course that um, I would say like had the biggest impact on just like you know, introducing me to an entire like discourse that has now become like my professional um, vocation. Um, and then there are, you know, there, there are like a million other things coming back that I
3: could,
0: <laughs> could mention. So it's an unfair um, uh, question to spring. I'm at
2: sorry. End, but, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm happy at least to end on the Eric Gregory ad because he is indeed the best. So yeah. um, thank you so much for your time. Oh, of course. This has been absolutely wonderful. Yeah.
0: Thank you.
1: Well, there you have it, Madisonians, Dr. Ryan Anderson on the state of social conservatism in Washington, D.C., and beyond. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can find us at jmp.princeton.edu. There's tons of further information there with old lectures that you can find recorded. You can sign up for our mailing list there. You can also find us on social media, on Twitter, at Madison Program, as well as on Instagram and Facebook. If you enjoyed this conversation, we would love if you could leave us some ratings or reviews on whatever your platform of choice is. It really does make a big difference to us and we really appreciate it. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time here on Madison's Notes.